HIV is still an issue in Montgomery County. The more open we're able to talk about HIV, we treat it like any other health prevention. PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. People who are not HIV positive, who may be at high risk for contracting the disease. This is a good choice for you. It's just a way for you to sort of take control and say, I'm gonna do this to protect myself. Do it for them, do it for you, Montgomery County. Learn more about PrEP, the HIV prevention medication. Visit doitforyoumc.org. So Luther, I think, gave us the formula for how to handle these things. It's to stand on Scripture alone and let the chips fall where they may. We're on the we're on the same side. We may disagree on, on certain theological issues, yeah, but, I, but I, we're I, on the I, same I, side. No, not at all. And, and look how nice we are to each other. Yeah. No, I enjoy this and uh, appreciate all you do out there for the Lord. Yeah. It's like you know what. What are you doing? You're spending all your time trying to destroy another Christian because you don't understand what's going on when you should be out there winning people for Jesus. Uh, we're not supposed to be lion's sheep. We're supposed to be Koreans. And so just to, no matter who it is, this goes for everybody. Um, you're, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of yours. I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. I, I love watching you and I love hearing what you have to say. And I think you're a, a great blessing to the body of Christ. Okay, everybody, welcome to uh, today's episode of Conversations with Jeff. Before I introduce our special guest, uh, just really quick, if you guys are watching this, make sure you head on over and you like us here on Facebook. That re- It really helps us. That way you can be notified when we're coming out with these new live podcasts. Um, and then also... Uh, head on over to YouTube and subscribe there because this video is going to be posted over on YouTube later. Um, but also, that's just going to help us to be able to get the our messaging out, get these podcasts out. We've got uh, this podcast. We've got uh, the Shining Light podcast. We've got more coming down the route. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a lot of fun, but it's fun having a lot of these guests. Uh, and today, we've got a very special guest. We've got uh, Brent Detweiler, who's one of the co-founders of Sovereign Grace, churches um and i know uh you know he he can be controversial at times i can be controversial at times but i know today is going to be a really good episode and a really good conversation so welcome to conversations brent and glad we could connect thank you jeff glad to be on your program yeah definitely and and again this is this is what i do with everybody the first time that i have them on give you a chance to share your testimony, how God saved you, how God's kind of worked in your life and that sort of thing. And it get, just, again, it's one of those things that gives people a chance to get to know you as opposed to just kind of the character that they see on Twitter, uh, which is really easy to do because there's that disconnect. So if you could share your testimony. That'd be, that'd be awesome. Sure. Be glad to. Well, I was born in the greater Philadelphia area, <clears throat> southeastern Pennsylvania, with a heavily German Lutheran uh, influence. So I was brought up in the Lutheran Church. To my knowledge, I never heard the gospel. I very well may have, and it just didn't register. But uh, from what I recollect, I don't ever hear a clear presentation of the gospel. 
And like most young people in the Lutheran Church, I was confirmed or baptized as an infant. Then I was confirmed later as a 13-year-old and uh, was a part of the uh, youth group, which is called the Luther League. Pretty cool name. (laughs) (laughs) But at the end of my senior year, I had just graduated. Our church decided that they were willing to help us out and send us to this event across the country in Dallas called Explo 72. I had never heard of it. And it was actually kind of odd that I'd have an interest to go to this big event. But I was told that uh, Billy Graham was going to be there and some guy named Bill Bright, who I didn't know, and other people. Um, But uh, I went, 13 of us went, and it turned out that all 13 of us were genuinely converted at this event under the preaching of Billy Graham. I can can remember with whatever, 80, 90,000 young people sitting in the cotton bowl, it just becoming clear to me, my goodness, I'm not a Christian. I've been religious my whole life. If anybody had ever asked me, I would have told them, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But if somebody had asked me, what is the gospel? I could not have told them. I didn't have a clue. And one night, by the grace of God, as Graham was preaching, it dawned on me. Wow, the gospel is the good news about the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And his death, Christ crucified, was really the heart of the gospel. And I began to see, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And that was something I had never realized before. And so I remember that night standing, tears in my eyes. I was not one to cry in those days. Uh, And remembering, wow, I need you, Jesus. Please take control of my life. Now, my father was uh, very well-known. He was a doctor in the area. Uh, My mother was a well-known socialite involved in a lot of community activities. Uh, We were kind of part of the country club set in the area. In fact, my parents helped to start the country club in that area. So we were a well-known family, uh, pretty well-to-do. I was on uh, the path to success and greatness when I graduated from high school, and I don't share this to draw attention to myself, but I received the award for the most likely to succeed. It was mostly a popularity contest, and my friends happened to vote me in. (laughs) But uh, two weeks after I received this reward, which really, uh, which was about my greatness, I encounter the living God through the person of Jesus Christ, and I become a Christian. And I realize that now life is about living for God's glory, not my glory. And essentially for those first 18 years, uh, it was all about me. It was about my greatness, my promotion, my popularity, my aspirations, my goals, my objectives. I had hoped to get into the Naval Academy, 
I was going to take over my father's practice, those types of things. And now all of a sudden, I encounter Christ. And I can remember uh, Bill Bright, Kemp's Crusade for Christ. He's also going home to be with the Lord, <clears throat> laying out for all of us uh, the claims of Christ, what it really meant to be a disciple, a follower, an adherent. And uh, that was important because there was a lot of emotion. I mean, I didn't know about the Jesus movement, but this was the height of the Jesus movement. And the charismatic movement was also in high gear, too. And so in that cotton bowl for this week-long event, uh, there was a lot of passion, a lot of emotion. And really, I couldn't identify with it earlier in the week. I came across these kids who were telling me, hey, Brent, uh, hey, listen, you know, we gave up sex, we gave up drugs. Now we're following Jesus. It's the best thing that you could ever experience. And I, I was just baffled. I you know, before I ended up being converted later in the week, I was listening, but I couldn't relate. And it just struck me that uh, they're talking about something I don't know. So anyway, Bill Bright uh, in another session laid out what it really meant to be a follower of Christ. And so I'll fast forward now. Uh, I came home and I realized, okay, my life is radically different. Everything has changed. And I was aware this might not go over too well. That being a Lutheran was one thing. Being a Jesus freak in those days, a completely other. Being a cultural Christian, fine. But being one of those born-again Christians, no, not so fine. So I don't need to go into the details, but I actually legitimately endured persecution and hostility, uh, a lot of mockery. Uh, I can remember going out to the country club and various friends of our family just saying, Brent, please stop it off, all this Jesus stuff. You're ruining your life. You're shaming your family. Um, you're ruining uh, all the great plans, you know, that we've had in mind for you. and. You know, I just remember telling family friends, my parents' friends, my own friends, that it was very, very different. And amongst my own friends, probably a third thought we were crazy. Another third just watched us for a long time. And another third came to know Christ because we started going to parties. But now we went to these parties. Instead of drinking and getting stoned, we were telling them about Jesus Christ and drinking a Coke. Well, that was in 1972, and here I am now, um, whatever, 48 years later, and that day, that experience, that week, I remember like it happened yesterday, and I'm as grateful for my salvation today as I was in June of 1972. And... I never thought this would happen, but I was invited to the dedication of Billy Graham's library in Charlotte and um, had a chance to meet Dr. Graham and actually personally thank him. I thought that would await heaven. And um, in those days, <clears throat> he was laying out a clear gospel and a call to follow Christ. So, you know, I, uh, I went off to college, 
and for two years I was kind of in a nominal Christian fellowship. Uh, my junior year, I went back to college. I started to lead a campus ministry. I was a pre-med major. And um, during those years, uh, this little fellowship that I began just grew and grew and grew by the grace of God. And it was in that context, I discovered by the end of my senior year, you know what? I, I don't want to go into medicine or go into teaching biology in the high school. Even though I thought about that, great place to do FCA or something like that, have kids into my home tell them about Jesus. But I began to feel a call to the ministry. So I went off to seminary and earned my master's of divinity. And then uh, upon graduation, I uh, went into full-time ministry. Yeah, and then, you know, which I think kind of will lead us into your experience with Sovereign Grace, because um, you, you were one of, I believe it was four, if I, if I remember correctly, one of the main guys that was there and helping to found that church movement, which, you know, has grown into this, you know, kind of massive organization that's all across the country and, and that sort of thing. What, what kind of led up to you guys founding Sovereign Grace and, and that, whole, that whole story? Well, it is a very interesting story. Uh, when I was out in seminary, the uh, church that was affiliated with the seminary was the largest church in America. I was actually one, if you can imagine, of 25 intern pastors. And uh, it was about a church of 15,000. And, um, and they used to do a large summer conference. And lo and behold, during that conference, Larry Tomzak, one of the other men who started uh, Sovereign Grace Ministries, was a guest speaker. And I had heard Larry preach at these large Jesus festivals in Pennsylvania. And so I had simply prayed, you know, Lord, set it up, since I was an intern pastor, uh, to be assigned to him as his host, one of our responsibilities. So lo and behold, in the providence of God, I was assigned to him. So I had a chance to introduce him before he spoke. I uh, had dinner with he and his wife, Doris. I uh, was able to just kind of help him out while they were there. And that was the beginning of my introdu introduction to Larry in 1978. And then the next year, when I graduated from seminary and moved back east, I was introduced to C.J. Mahaney. So Larry and CJ were down in uh, Washington, D.C., and <clears throat> they were doing a teaching ministry called Take and Give, or TAG, and they were in the process of starting a church that was called Gathering of Believers that would later become Covenant Life Church. Uh, and I was back in Pennsylvania, where I had done my undergraduate work and led that campus ministry, and now I had begun a church also off campus as well as continue to be involved on campus. And so we now knew of each other. And so <clears throat> during those years, 1979 to 1982, we had become good friends. And um, this sounds awful simplistic, but it's actually the way it happened as we were reading our Bibles, you know, it just became apparent, wow, this stuff in the book of Acts is incredible. Why don't we try and do this? I mean, why don't we just try and imitate, with all our limitations, what they did, which was plant churches, 
that were gospel-centered. <coughs> and so in 1982, we began what was called then People of Destiny International. And I moved down from Pennsylvania to the D.C. area so that uh, I could be a part of starting up with one other brother, Bill Galbraith, um, what became Sovereign Grace Ministries. Uh, my responsibilities uh, involved in those early years, starting what ended up becoming the Pastors College. Uh, CJ and Larry uh, didn't have any formal training, and so they were pretty weak in Christian doctrine. Thankfully, I had really gotten an outstanding education under some outstanding professors, and um, because of that, I was able to come back and begin to impart uh, the things that I had uh, been privileged to, to learn. And so in 82, we started Sovereign Grace Ministries, and lo and behold, it just began to grow and grow and grow. You know, it was largely in the Middle Atlantic states. Then we began to branch out a little bit more into the southeastern states, and then a little bit out in California, Arizona, and began to do a few things in Mexico, some experiments in the Philippines, but <clears throat> over time, you know, it was pretty much, you know, throughout the United States or many places in the United States and various parts of the world. And so <clears throat> when I ended up leaving Sovereign Grace Ministries, I was in charge of our international outreach in Asia, Caribbean, the Bahamas, and overseeing directly all the churches in the southeastern part of the United States. Uh, I had founded the Pastors College, written the Statement of Faith, um, and was on the board of directors for 25 years. And uh, for most of those years, I was in the number two man after uh, CJ, who I, on the Sovereign Grace side of the ledger, had primary responsibility for in terms of caring for his soul. And so CJ and I were, were dear friends. We were close friends. Yeah, so, so then eventually, from what I understand about about your story and and that sort of thing, eventually it led to there there being issues coming up, and you had concerns, and then eventually you separated from Sovereign Grace. What what did that entail? Because I know you've written I know you've written a lot about it. You've you've got documentation that backs it up and that sort of thing. But if you could just even briefly just kind of share like what was actually going on that caused you to kind of be like, okay, this isn't sitting right. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, <clears throat> there's no hiding this. You know, Larry, CJ, the other men, they were dear friends. Uh, I mean, there are some people who uh, so despise CJ uh, for various reasons. Um, I still love the man. I would love uh, to see him respond to the things I've written and to the calls from others. But thus far, he still has remained stubbornly unrepentant. And that's brought uh, great, great, great harm to thousands and thousands of people. But CJ had many strengths. He had many gifts. Um, he had a gift of leadership, uh, wisdom, very insightful, uh, many ways, tremendous joy to be around. He could be generous, encouraging. Uh, but there was also stubborn pride there from the beginning. In fact, it was funny, when I moved down there in 1982, of course, I thought the world of 
Larry Times, I can see Jamie Haney. And I thought in my naivety, these guys probably never sinned. Or if they did, it was never serious. I mean, that's how high my regard was for them. And, uh, <clears throat> and so when I got down there, all of a sudden, we're in these leadership meetings, the four of us, and then a little bit later, six of us, and Larry and CJ would begin to have these like conflicts with each other. And lo and behold, Larry, who was leading the team at that time, would say, Brent, would you lead us through this? And I would say, what? <laughs> you want me to lead you guys through this conflict? Well, that's 1982. And so I ended up having that role for many, many years. So I was always the mediator between Larry and CJ, and um, they regularly had difficulties with each other. They worked at it, uh, they sought to grow, but ultimately in 1997, Larry left. Very complicated, but one of the things that happened was CJ blackmailed him, and Larry, unbeknownst to CJ, was returning or was uh, uh, recording the phone call. And in that context, Larry's son had committed some very serious sins. And he had confided in CJ. These were sins for which he could have been criminally prosecuted and should have been. And uh, CJ knew all about it because Larry's son had confessed it to CJ in the context of complete and total confidence. But when Larry was going to be leaving Sovereign Grace in 97 and doing it unethically, uh, CJ tragically, horrifically said, if you leave Larry under these false pretenses that it's about doctrinal differences, then I'm gonna go public about your son. And uh, I didn't know the details. I was not told the details till many years later. But, <clears throat> you know, that's with CJ. Boy, if you put him in a bad light, he may even blackmail you. And so, anyway, uh, around 2000, year 2000, things had happened with our, um, our administrator where he was having difficulty relating to CJ. And he was, we called him the executive director. He was a friend of mine. He was actually the best man at my wedding. And um, he was beginning to raise issues with CJ about his leadership style and his leadership ability. And most of what he was saying had a lot of substance to it and was really quite accurate and would have been helpful to CJ. CJ took offense and um, began to do to this gentleman some of the things he had done to others over the years. And so um, I was asked to get involved in this situation. And it was in that context, after I had done a thorough investigation, I concluded that the majority of the blame was with CJ. And at that point, CJ became very angry, uh, fired me <laughs> from my mediatorial position and just said, we're not talking about it anymore. 
Well, it was at that point that I thought, okay, uh, we need to really do something about this. We can't allow this to continue informally. And so in 2000, I began a formal process with Steve Shank and Dave Harvey, two other key guys at that point in time, to begin to raise issues with CJ. And we did that for three and a half years with no success. Finally, I decided I need to get a hold of the Covenant Life pastors. That's where CJ was based. Um, at that point, he was still the senior pastor, although Joshua Harris was going to soon be taking over. And uh, of course, I knew all those men well. And <clears throat> when I got a hold of them, I did it with all respect. And we were doing CJ's annual evaluation. And so I was asking Kenneth Morasco and Grant Lehman and Joshua Harris, hey, um, here's some of the things that we're discussing with CJ in his annual evaluation. What's your experience? And I was actually shocked by what they told me. And uh, I mean, really shocked. And so at that point in time, I began to realize those guys are in the dark. CJ hasn't been filling them in on our input. And we were in the dark because even though it wasn't a lot of input, CJ wasn't filling us in on their input and discovered that CJ was deceptively, deceitfully and intentionally withholding this information. And so finally, I called a meeting. It was really a crisis intervention, August 20th, 2004. And uh, the top leaders from Covenant Life Church were there and the top leaders from Sovereign Grace were there. And we spent four or five hours with CJ raising these issues. I knew for me, this was make or break. I knew CJ was either going to come to repentance or this will cost me everything. It ended up costing me everything. Soon thereafter, uh, CJ turned against me over the next three years, really came after me. But because I was so well loved and respected and really known throughout the movement, uh, I trained all the pastors in the pastor's college. I had the responsibility for the most people in the most churches. Um, you know, he couldn't just throw me overboard. And so it's a long story, not worth going into, but it was a horrible experience, horrible experience. Um, and um, finally, I resigned from the board of directors because I no longer trusted CJ. I had lost pretty much all my respect for him. So I resigned from the board of directors in 2007, decided I'll plan another church, which I did. But that was uh, ultimately not acceptable. And so CJ began to use individuals like Gene Emerson, who since was sentenced for the solicitation of prostitution, guys like Bob Coughlin, who came and did a bogus investigation that effectively framed me. I was not given any due process. I wasn't allowed to address the false witnesses that were aligned against me. And it was another horrific uh, story that I've never finished writing. Um, I hope to be able to finish it in the coming months. 
But anyway, in 2009, I left Sovereign Grace. But I still love Sovereign Grace. And I still love CJ. And um, I thought, I'm out. But I still want to help these guys. I want to see these issues of corruption addressed. And so, in the hypocrisy, the independence, the pride, uh, those types of things in CJ's life. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the time to write documents and send them to CJ and ask the inner circle of guys to read them and help him. And that's when I began in private to write these documents. I was the unofficial historian, or if you would, archivist for Sovereign Grace Ministries from the very beginning. And so I had all the records. I didn't have all the records because I ever designed to use them against Sovereign Grace, but in the providence of God, that's the way it worked out. I was the one who had everything. And so that's why I was able to detail everything that I did. It's not any hearsay or speculation. It's all firsthand primary source documentation. And so I began to send those documents and um, try and get a response. CJ wanted to meet. I said, CJ, I'm really glad to meet. But first, I want a written response because I couldn't trust him. And I knew if we met and it was off the record and it wasn't recorded or videoed, we'd leave that meeting and it would just be he said, he said. And so I said, CJ, I want it written. I want to know what you're thinking. If you'll answer my questions, then I'll get together with you. And in fact, he refused to do that. And um, and so then we uh, we get to July of 2011. And I'm saying to CJ, I'm saying to CJ and the other guys on the board of directors, you know what, guys? CJ still has not responded, and he's promised to, not responded to the most serious allegations I brought against him in these documents. Um, and I referenced the fact that I may need to send these out to the pastors if he doesn't respond. Little did I know that behind my back, they were already undermining me to the Sovereign Grace pastors. Dave Harvey was doing this. And he was just saying, hey, we're warning you that uh, these tall tales by Brent might be coming your way. And uh, here I'm relating to them totally above board. You know, hopefully that we're going to meet doing everything with complete honesty. And uh, these guys were already working to sabotage me if I do send out the documents. And I didn't threaten them. It was just a passing reference. Well, anyway, uh, when they became aware that I might do this and they had put into places behind the scenes uh, undermining of me, CJ thought, I better take a leave of absence. And so he stepped down. The only reason he stepped down 
was because he knew there was a chance I might send out the documents. And so it was a way of looking humble. But in his announcement as to why he was stepping down, it was full of deception. He said, a couple former leaders, you know, from Sovereign Grace in bygone years, I've learned, you know, have a fence with me. And, you know, so, hey, I want to meet with them. I want to talk to them. I want to iron it out. Oh, it was so, so, so much more serious than that. It wasn't a couple former leaders. Uh, and when he said that, when he posted that in the Sovereign Grace blog, I said, that's the straw. That's now broken the camel's back. I have to alert all my friends, my 300 pastor friends in Sovereign Grace. And so I sent them the documents because this was the final exhibit of deceit. It just had to be exposed. Thereafter, 40 churches left Sovereign Grace 100 pastors left Sovereign Grace. Half the people in the movement left Sovereign Grace. 12, 13,000 left. But immediately, I mean immediately the next day, uh, they initiated an all-out campaign against me. And whereas, for instance, I don't want to bore you with too many details, but whereas right up until I sent out the documents, and they were conveying to me, hey, these documents are great, Brent. Thank you. They're so beneficial. You know, we <clears throat> we really want to respond to everything you're saying. Yeah, thanks for putting them together. The day I sent them out, all of a sudden, Dave Harvey and the other guys included Joshua Harris and Jeff Perswell uh, go online and begin to say, Brent is a gossip. Brent is a slanderer. Uh, CJ never had an opportunity to respond and just began to, to make up some of the most outrageous lies. Well, people knew me in Sovereign Grace. I mean, they trusted me. And so they saw what was happening and they were now reading my documents and they realized, oh my goodness, this is not gossip. This is not slander. Uh, this is true. And so there was a big blowback then from within Sovereign Grace. Yeah, well, you know, and, and that's one of the things, too, is like when, when I first learned of you was back when I was a hardcore follower of, of Phil Johnson and his blog over, over at the Pyromaniacs and that sort of thing. And I, and I even remember back then, like my first impression of you was based off of his commentary, which was downplaying the documents and, you know, talking up CJ. Um, and the first time that I even remember um, learning about CJ was when he used to speak at the youth conference with uh, right. that MacArthur would do out in Palm Springs and that sort of thing. Right. And I, I always thought, like, he's a very dynamic, charismatic, you know, teacher. I get why people, you know, like his teaching. I really enjoyed his teaching. Um, right. But I just, I just remember as you're kind of explaining this, I remember my first impression being downplay the documents that Brent is releasing and talking up CJ. And it was just like a constant deflect and kind of push it down the road. So from, from your perspective, what, what, do you, what was the blowback from people outside Sovereign Grace 
Um, like, were they, was everybody siding with CJ? Were the people that were siding with you? Like, how, how did that all play out? Right. Uh, well, it is interesting. You talked about CJ coming out to Grace to do the youth conferences with Rick Holland. <clears throat> I was CJ's closest confidant. And so he would come back and he would fill me in on really everything that transpired. And so there are things I know that I've not even written about. Um, in terms of his personal interaction with the top leaders out there, with John MacArthur. And uh, so I've included that in some of my materials, but in typical fashion, I took extensive notes, as much as I could verbatim notes from all those conversations. And so um, I, I knew the issues that CJ was trying to raise with John MacArthur. I knew the problems between John MacArthur and all the guys on the staff. I knew what guys uh, like uh, Lance Quinn and uh, Dan Dumas and Rick Holland were going through with John and that they were all ready to leave because there was no friendship, there was no fellowship, there was no encouragement. Uh, they were terrified of John MacArthur, raised to, afraid to raise any issue. So those are the things that CJ was filling me in on. And CJ's goal was to try and help John to help him to build more relationally. And, um, but that never happened. And so inevitably all those men left. And that was the main reason for their leaving. And so I had the inside story, even though I held on to all that information for many, many, many years. It was only recently when I had to write about John MacArthur uh, that I included some of that information. Yeah. Well, and, well, and, and, I, really, and really quick, I was just going to throw in there, like, just to like corroborate, like what, what you're saying about that kind of that culture of fear is how the WASC um, had come in the accreditation board for the, for the college and the seminary, they came in and said that professors at the college and university were saying that there is a culture of intimidation and fear. So that would line up perfectly with kind of how you're describing um, you know, what, what CJ was conveying to you about what was actually going on behind the scenes and that sort of thing as well. Right. Yeah. And I think that's very important. The Western Association of Schools and Colleges sent a team in last March, uh, comprised of six academic professionals. These are very, very, very high ranking individuals in academia. And they came in and this is just a summary that I put in one of my articles. This is what these are their words. The finding of a pervasive culture and climate of fear, intimidation, bullying, and uncertainty. The fear of speaking up, management overriding or circumventing controls, the appearance of conflicts of interest, the cacophony of concerns about the current culture of the institution. This is what they're writing about the seminary and the university, specific reports of unethical behavior by key leaders and fear of reprisals were consistent and corroborated through multiple sources. The related reports of lack of leadership ethics and accountability that emerged was unmatched for members of this review team. It seems this has been part of the operation for so long that is practiced without question. The pervasive belief that longtime employees have been dismissed 
for speaking up has resulted in a toxic environment that must be immediately addressed. And that's just a basic summary of six professionals. And of course, uh, the university continues on probation, as does the seminary. They, con they continue under the investigation of the Department of uh, Education uh, for violation of the Clery Act. Uh, more information on both of these is going to come forward. It is extremely uncommon for a seminary and university to put on probation. And they have since been back. They continue the probation because there are still changes that have not been made. This was covered in multiple stories by the press there in California. I allude to eight different news stories, you know, that documents all of this. Yeah, so it's a pervasive problem. But you're right, <clears throat> uh, Phil was your typical Phil. <laughs> Shock. I, 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 I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> I I remembered, I knew Phil, but only by his face, because he would do the interviews with John MacArthur, and there were occasions when I would uh, watch some of those interviews, but I didn't know who the guy was who had interview, was interviewing John. Um, but lo and behold, I think it was in April of 2014, so now my documents have gone viral, they're being read across the nation, including guys like Phil. And uh, <clears throat> it's now April 2014, and Phil's on his Facebook page with his 20,000 Facebook followers. It's probably more like 40,000 now. And all of a sudden, he starts ripping into me. And <laughs> somebody contacts me, uh, a noted individual contacts me and says, Phil Johnson is tearing into you on his Facebook page. And honestly, I didn't know who Phil Johnson was. <laughs> I didn't know. And so I just, you know, went online, Phil Johnson, Facebook, and uh, began to figure out, oh, okay, this is a guy who's done interviews with John MacArthur in the past. Now, I, I still didn't really know who he was, but I just jump online. And as, you know, he's staring into me, I just said, yo, hey, Phil, hi, this is Brent couple questions for you. Did you ever read the documents? You know, um, and uh, you say this and this and that about the documents. Really? What about this? What about that? You know, and so I just began to very politely, anybody, this is all recorded in one of my articles, politely and respectfully, you know, began to challenge Phil. And ultimately, it came to a place where he made the claim that he had talked to victims of sexual abuse in the lawsuit who told him their story. And based upon what those victims, plural, said to him or wrote to him, he did not believe that CJ was guilty of any conspiracy to cover up sexual abuse. Well, I know all the victims. I know their story. In some cases, I know their story better than anyone. I've studied it for years. 
I still have more information about their stories that I've never even released. I put like a 600 page report together for law enforcement. Um, I know this stuff backwards and forwards. And, um, and so I say to Phil, Oh, Phil, you talk to the victims. Really? Who'd you talk to? Well, I'm not going to tell you, Phil, you're not going to tell me how many did you talk to? I'm not going to tell you, Phil, you didn't talk to any of them. Yes, I did. Well, Phil, how about telling me who you are? Tell me how many? When did you talk to them? I'm not going to say it's confidential. And so anyway, long and short of it is, this is part of one of the articles I wrote about Phil. I contacted all of the victims. None of them talked to him. And so he was just lying through his teeth, which I've come to realize is typical for Phil Johnson. And I say that advisedly. I say that informatively. Uh, the only person that Phil interacted with was one of the mothers of a victim who I know. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, what is amazing after that account, and Phil was terribly belligerent. Uh, you know, one of the things, yes, is funny, might entertain your uh, listeners a little bit. But one of the things that happened is Phil started laying into me about, well, you know, hey, Brent, listen, you were a big shot, you know, as Sovereign Grace. You're claiming you didn't know about all this? You didn't know about any of the sexual abuse? And I'm saying, yeah, that's right. I didn't know. Oh, yeah, right. And uh, Todd Pruitt, a mortification spin, he jumps into the conversation. And then lo and behold, I didn't know who Todd was either. Another guy jumps in, a guy by the name of Tom Chantry. I didn't know who Tom Chantry was. And uh, so they start ripping me. And uh, little did they know uh, that at that very moment, I was at the hospital and my wife was going through her second of four, four surgeries for breast cancer. And so as they're asking me about, hey, sure, you had to know about this. And I'm saying, no, I didn't, but I can't answer right now. I'll get back to you. So in typical fashion, they began to mock and ridicule. And I said, I will get back to you. After that second surgery in my life, my wife had a life-threatening complication and I wasn't able to respond for I don't know four or five days but I finally got back gave him a thorough complete answer and told him I didn't know for one reason and that's because to my knowledge I was the only one who ever reported sexual abuse when I became aware of it that happened in 1995, and in 2000, I was contacted by a senior pastor in my sphere of churches who said, hey, this is what's going on. What should we do? I said, what should you do? You should call the police. Yep. yep. And the senior pastor didn't want to do it. I said, you've got to do it. Uh, and both those men went to prison for 20, 30 years. And so CJ knew that because those are the kind of things we brought to the leadership meetings and to the board meetings. And so CJ knew I had a track record of turning perverts 
into law enforcement. And that's why CJ withheld his knowledge of all the sexual abuse within Sovereign Grace from me because I would have insisted that it be reported. And uh, that's why these guys have never allowed for any kind of investigation. I mean, they are so guilty. They can't afford a legitimate investigation by real professionals. And so Sovereign Grace to this day has maintained the position, it's impossible. We're not allowed to do it under our book of church order. And yet four churches in Sovereign Grace have said, that's nonsense. You can do it under the Book of Church Order. One of the guys who is a major player in writing the book has even come out. But anyway, going back to Phil. So Phil's you know, mocking and ridiculing me. <laughs> anyway, I ended up writing his elders and just saying, you've got a problem here with Phil. He's lying. He's deceiving. And he's out of control. You got to help this guy. And so, I mean, I'm writing John MacArthur. I did get through to him, not directly, but I know I got through to him because he always tries to stay back in the shadows and uh, keep his hands clean. But I got to the board and Chris Hamilton, who was the chairman of the board for Grace Community Church, called me. I talked to Chris for 30 minutes it's very clear, it's all documented. He called me to silence me. He didn't want me writing about all of this. And I said, listen, Chris, you provide me the evidence. And that will go a long way. I mean, not writing. And if you will discipline Phil, that will go a long way in me not writing about this. Yeah. Well, and, and, and to kind of go along with that, too, is that, you know, and I can again, I can corroborate that story as well, because I know that um, I know that Brandon House and um, a few other people have written letters to the Grace elders and about, with their concerns about Phil. And they were told, don't ever contact us again. Um, I know that at one point and I'm not going to deal publicly with what the accusation was, but at one point. Um, I even tried to reach out to, you know, Grace leadership and that sort of thing. And I called the church. The church said, oh, anything to do with Phil, you have to contact Grace to you and talk to their leadership. So then you contact Grace to you. And the person that, that was answering the calls literally said, uh, the only person that is able to take calls about Phil Johnson is Phil Johnson. You're not allowed to talk to anybody. So the, so the church, even though he's an elder at the church, the elders won't take calls about Phil. And then if you contact Grace to you, the leadership of Grace to you won't take calls about Phil. The only person that you can talk to about your concerns with Phil Johnson is Phil Johnson. Like, right. how, how is that even a thing? Right. Uh, no, uh, they have a firewall around everything. And um, there's no accountability. Mm -hmm. There's no accountability. I mean, I, I told Chris Hamilton, yeah, chairman of the board, Listen, this is what Phil said. Uh, here's what he's written. I've talked to all the victims. He didn't talk to any of them. <clears throat> and he's trying to threaten me. And I just said, listen, 
Chris, this isn't going to work. I'm not going to be silenced. And you don't have any evidence. And that's why you can't present any evidence. And so at that point, I just realized, oh, my goodness, these guys will go to great lengths to cover up, you know. And so, yeah, that's what ended up happening. And oh, it was interesting, of course, Tom Chantry, uh, who chimed in and said, yeah, Detweiler's making this all up about Mahaney. There's no evidence. Yeah, it was in April of 2016 in July, just five months later, whatever, he was arrested for sexually, or, uh, for aggravated assault of children and um, sexual molestation. Um, and this is a guy who's a friend of Phil Johnson. In fact, when Phil took a reprieve on pyromaniacs and stepped down because his doctor said, you're gonna have a heart attack. And his wife is saying, stop it, you've got to stop. You know, his blood pressure was through the roof and so forth. And Phil said, okay, I'm at the end of my life. I'm gonna die if I don't stop. So he took a reprieve, uh, but in that context, he made a recommendation to Frank Turk and uh, the other guy, uh, Phillips, I guess. Yeah, Dan Phillips. Said, yeah. yeah, said, hey, here's my recommendation to replace me, Tom Chantry. And you know, uh, I have no reason to believe whatsoever in any way, shape or form that Phil has ever physically or sexually assaulted anything or anyone. Let me be clear on that. But in terms of arrogance and deceit, Phil and Tom Chantry are birds of a feather. Um, they conduct themselves in the same way. So, you know, when uh, Chantry was arrested, it's just like, wow, I'm not surprised that he had committed these crimes. Uh, just because of my own experience with him. Yeah, well, you know, and, and I th but I think, too, dealing with a lot of this, I think a lot of it is there's this PR machine that's among all of the evangelical elite church leaders, right? So you, you can kind of go down the list of, or, you know, everybody that's involved with the Gospel Coalition, everybody, I mean, essentially everybody that's involved with any of the, any of the, any of the mega churches, right? They have this right. PR machine that basically they try to deflect as much as they can. I mean, so, I mean, we see this with CJ. We see this, we see this with the MacArthur crowd. We see it with Al Mohler. We see it with all these guys. And so they just deflect, deflect, deflect. Um, and so, like, one of the stories where we see this kind of deflection and then ad hominem attacks in order to discredit the other side was this whole issue with John MacArthur and his account of the night that Martin Luther King happened. And I know that Paige Rogers, who she had no history of dealing with John MacArthur or attacking him or anything along those lines, she's the one that writes the story. And then they try to discredit her, attack her, destroy her. Um, and then I know that after, after that happened, you followed up with more research and documentation to try to figure out, is the story true? Is it not true? Can it be corroborated? Um, what, what drew you to this story to make you feel like this is worth investigating? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, in the providence of God, I had had this experience with Phil. And uh, <clears throat> now all of a sudden, 
I become aware, in fact, I'm trying to remember how I even heard about Page's article. Maybe somebody brought it to my attention. A lot of times that's the case. I didn't know who Paige Rogers was, but <clears throat> I read the article and I thought, wow, this is an amazing article. I know nothing about this reporter, but this is well written. I mean, this is written in a way I could not possibly write. It was researched exceptionally. It had a tremendous attitude. Uh, she was very respectful. There are no ad hominem attacks. And I just thought, this is impressive journalism. I didn't know who the Noak report was. I didn't know who J.D. Rucker was. I didn't know who Brandon House was. I'm not friends with any of those. You know, I wasn't friends with Brandon. I've never had any communication with him at all. Uh, and so I'm just reading her article thinking, this is incredible. And this is just like my experience with Phil. And so I thought, wow, this is terrible. Phil has not changed one iota. And, uh, and so I contacted Paige with a question. I didn't know she'd get back to me. I didn't know she'd be interested in answering some question. And I can't even remember what it was, but I think it was the day after. I just sent her a simple question for clarification. Oh, I sent her a question about, hey, um, Phil, do you have any, uh, Paige, do you have any documentation on cell phones back then or car phones back then? Because that question had already come up. It couldn't have been a phone call, you know, to Charles Evers. They didn't have car phones back then. That was one of the pieces of propaganda that Phil and his boys were putting out. But of course, I think three point six million people actually had car phones in 1968. Uh, of course, it wasn't widespread. They were expect they were expensive. But Charles Evers was the head of the NAACP in Mississippi. And he's going to rallies and marches and boycotts everywhere all the time. If you wanted anybody to have a car phone, it would be him. And I'm sure the NAACP financed it. Well, anyway, you know, I contact her. And so she sent me some articles from back then. And then, uh, yeah, I just began to look at it a little bit more. But I began then to watch the way Phil just ripped into her and just started to go ballistic, calling her all kinds of names, just doing what he attempted to do with me. It backfired on him. Uh, and, uh, and so I began to raise issues on my Facebook page. I began to uh, challenge what was going on. I began to write Phil. I began to write MacArthur. Because one of the things I've always done, I think when I say always, I think 98% of the time or more, but I always go to individuals in public. You know, when I write these extensive documentary uh, blog articles, I always attempt to go to those individuals in person and then to the circle of men around them and even oftentimes to a wider circle to address it. And so that's what I did. So I write Phil, I write MacArthur. I said, hey guys, 
I've researched this thoroughly, thoroughly. And it is. The story you have told is a total hoax. It's a complete fabrication. I didn't lay out all the evidence for him, but, you know, I conveyed it very clearly to him. And I said, this really needs to be brought to the attention of all your elders. And and um, I followed through and brought it to the attention. Well, in typical Phil fashion, <laughs> brought back brought back such fond memories of Phil. He writes me, he has no idea what I know. He has no idea what research I've done because I haven't filled him in. I've just said, it's completely fallacious. And he writes me back, none of your accusations against me or John MacArthur has ever been backed with actual evidence. They are the fruit of your own evil speculations. That along with your egotistical sense of self-importance has convinced me that you are a delusional man. The claim that I made vicious attacks on Paige Rogers is just the latest example. I simply pointed out the glaring deficiencies in her hit piece. You cannot cite a single instance in which I have made vicious attacks on her in any literal sense of the word. And of course, I never made that claim. And then a little bit later, he says, I expect you are going to publicize your accusations anyway, because that is what you do. Nevertheless, I say this in the off chance that there is still a tincture of common sense somewhere in your angry mind. He continues on. I have says, allow me to repeat this polite request. I have zero interest in reading, much less replying to your fulminations. And he says that what I was saying about John MacArthur was so far-fetched that it seemed to warrant a rebuke in keeping with Proverbs 26.5, which says, answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. It's funny. So, he he like he like he likes to use that uh, that passage anytime anybody ever disagrees with him. He uses that against me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> he needs to come up with some new material. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, and and, and that's the thing that, that's the thing about going down Paige's article, which again, you you went ahead and you corroborated a lot a lot of her a lot of her information, you know, after the fact. You 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 went through almost itemized everything but the interesting thing is like you could go down the list the only evidence that i've seen provided from either side has only corroborated page's story i have not i have yet to see any single shred of evidence that discredits her story and and you know they can keep deflecting they can keep saying you know all these different things and i would be more than happy to be corrected and I and I guarantee you, Paige would be more than happy to be corrected if somebody could come forward and say, "Here's an eyewitness. Here's some evidence. Here's a photo. Here's documentation." And there's been none of it except for ad hominem, try to you know discredit her and discredit everybody else that's helping to share the story. Right. No, you're exactly right. Um, you know, they viciously, verbally, attacked Paige. I, I, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, I, I can't overstate how vicious uh, Phil was and others like Fred Butler 
and those that really blindly followed these men. And so you're absolutely right. I went through pages, article, word by word, line by line, paragraph by paragraph. I checked literally everything she wrote, everything. I double checked all the reports. I read the FBI report, the Tennessee Bureau report, the Memphis Police Department report. Uh, I, I read everything and I could not find one thing not one thing that was factually untrue about what she said. And I was looking, I was looking because uh, I would not have had said, I would have not had any problem in saying, you know, Miss Rogers is mistaken here. She made an error here. She made a mistake here. I don't think it was vicious. Or if I thought it was malign, I would have said so. I would just said, yeah, I'm concerned. But I didn't find any of it. And in the process, I came across so much more evidence. And the thing that I was able to do <clears throat> was to follow all these deflections, really these evil deflections, where, yeah, but, you know, uh, Charles Ever said this, and Charles Ever said that, and he's contradicting his story. And Perkins said this, and Perkins said that, and he's contradicting his story. And so they're intentionally misrepresenting and making up specious stories and accounts that had no resemblance to the facts. So my article is 130 pages, because I know Phil is going to pick at anything Unchell, the lawyer, he's going to pick at anything that isn't factually proven. It is all factually proven to be true. The long and the short of it is John MacArthur, on seven different occasions, maybe more that we don't know of, lied over a 12-year period of time. And probably his most succinct statement um, that really covers it all. Let's see if I can find it. Is this one? He made this to Grace Community Church. I kind of major on this one in my article, where he says, "I was in the room when Char when Martin Luther King was assassinated with those black leaders. We went to Memphis, and I stood on the blood stop." spots on that motel with those men. And I stood in the little bathroom on the toilet where James Earl Ray shot out the window. Those men were my friends. Every single thing in that statement is a provable lie. Page proved it. I proved it. And there is no question about it. I mean, it is just absolutely the case. And you know, what is so tragic is it's oftentimes when this type of thing is exposed, these guys have a moment in time where they could humble themselves and say, okay, we're gonna do what we've preached. We're gonna do what we're known for, being men of integrity and say, yes, my vain glorious pride has gotten the better of me. I made all this up when none of it 
is true. I am so sorry. But instead what happens is Phil, when all this is breaking right after Paige writes, he goes to MacArthur and says, hey, John, so did you go to Memphis that night, August 4th or April 4th, 1968, with Evers and Perkins and others? Absolutely, yes, I went with all those men. And so John just piles on. Now, at that point, those men thought they could kill this story. They thought they could verbally kill Paige Rogers. They were going after the juggler. This was to be a total, absolute smackdown. And they were not holding any punches and they were recruiting others to do it. And uh, I mean, God bless Paige. She just has the sweetest attitude. She's one of the kindest souls. And they so vilified her. I mean, I have said this, and people who haven't read the evidence, um, they can say whatever they want, but they need to read what I wrote. And then if they have any integrity, they will be forced to demand that John MacArthur step down from ministry and Phil Johnson be fired. If the Bible means anything at all, if the teaching of John MacArthur means anything at all, if the MacArthur Study Bible notes mean anything at all, these men need to sit down. I have not seen a more vicious attack upon the truth by anyone. Yeah, well, you know, and, and the thing is, is that like a lot of people will say, well, this was just one story. It's not it's not in his nature. It's not in his character to make up a story. So we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. But then there was the other story that, that we carried on our website, the GK, but and you cited as well in your article, which is his his accounts of his uh, his football career. Uh, in college and being recruited to play in the right. NFL and things like that, and I, and I know that you discussed that as well in your article. Um, right. And I th and I think what it, what that does is it shows a pattern of of you know giving yourself credibility, puffing yourself up in that sort of thing. So we can't say this is like a one and done mistake or he misremembered or whatever it is. Now we now we have another account where he did something similar. Right. Yes, and, uh, you know, I think more is going to come out in the days to come because um, there are individuals who know more about what has transpired at the university seminary and church than have gone public, and I'm hopeful they're going to go public. But <clears throat> the lying of John MacArthur uh, is well known. And even, for instance, the way he's presented his books, I guess he's written like 200 books. He hasn't written any of them. They've all been written by ghostwriters. You would not know that. Uh, yeah, you know, and, and, and to go along with that, you know, I, I have a I have a friend that was uh, really big in the Mars Hill um, denomination back with Mark Driscoll, and they would have their annual conferences and things like that. And he and he told me, and this was before, way before any of this. This we're talking many, many years ago. And and I remember he even made the point that 
there was a guy that was there hanging out with Driscoll, and he's going around bragging to everybody. You know, he's the one that wrote MacArthur's last, last book. Now, again, I can't, I can't corroborate that. I can't verify it. But, again, that's just one more piece of evidence that seems to be corroborating all these other accounts. Exactly. You're exactly right. Uh, you may know who Bill Shannon is. He's one of the insiders at Grace Community. He's one of the 14 men on MacArthur's uh, uh, leadership team for Grace Community. And so <clears throat> I send all my evidence to all these men. I don't know if you're aware, but, I mean, I send all my, my uh, evidence to all the professors, all the faculty, all the elders, everyone in the leadership team, all the pastors. So every one of these men, everyone, at the seminary, at the university, at the church, know John MacArthur and Phil Johnson have acted corruptly. Um, they have all the evidence. So, uh, you know, one of the articles I sent, uh, I sent to Bill Shannon. Bill writes me back. It's really pretty funny. He says, I live here and your facts are not facts. Your mean spirit is classic. So I'm just thinking, wow, I don't know if Phil's a disciple of him or he's a disciple of Phil, but <laughs> this is just the same vitriolic response where you send these guys documented material and that's the response. So I, I just wrote him back. And Bill Shannon, one of the top guys, I just said, no, they are facts. And for mean spirit is classic, you employ Phil Johnson. Phil is a tyrant when called upon to do the dirty work. And everyone knows it. I can't tell you how many people have told me that. You are full of hubris. Stop the deceit. MacArthur never went to Memphis with Evers or Perkins. Both of those men are on the record. And how about posting the letters from the Cleveland Browns and the Washington Redskins? That's easy to do. And also cite evidence of MacArthur being a collegiate All-American. Of course, you can't do so because it does not exist. This I live here and your facts are not facts is just part of the con. And there's no end to your lying. Throckmorton just posted about Perkins 1976 autobiography, the justice rolled down, not even a passing reference about any trip or standing on Martin Luther King's blood or being in a boarding room with the toilet. You men, are deceivers, and they really are. I say that uh, not out of spite, resentment, bitterness, that is solely based upon overwhelming evidence. All John MacArthur has to do is say, hey, here's my American certificate, and here are the letters from the Washington Redskins and the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, here's a letter about going to the training clamp, champ. And as you guys revealed, on gatekeepers, it's all a hoax. His junior year in high school, he ran for three yards. One rush. I mean, it had to be like an impressive rush. <laughs> wow. And yet he's getting letters. Oh. And um, his lying about 
professional sports and sports achievements are legendary. That comes from individuals within the operation out there. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and, I, and I think, too, is like looking at just even that story. And Dustin Faulkner is the one that, that wrote that story. He did a great job, again, documenting it, make double checking everything and that sort of thing. But like you look at the timeline of that. I mean, he, he talks about being asked to go play in the NFL he made it. He made it. Uh, he made us believe that it was going to be, I believe, his senior year of, or right after college, or something like that. And he was trying to decide, am I going to go to seminary or not, or whatever it is. I mean, he. This was like four years after he graduated college, after he had already been going through seminary, and I believe was already a pastor to church. If you look at the timeline and who he cites and that sort of thing, it just doesn't right. add up. Now, like you're saying, all he'd have to do is come back and say. I was wrong about X, Y, and Z. Let me correct my statement. Let me correct my story. And that would be the end of it. But instead, it seems like all they're doing is just digging their heels in, and then they make it worse, and then just go ad hominem. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and so, so well, I, no, go ahead. It's, it's interesting, you know, they, they went after Paige, but when I wrote, she wrote in February, I wrote in June. In June, they kept totally silent. You know, in her case, their preferred tactic was to attack her and to do her in, to just make her out to be schizophrenic, a nut, a crazy, a, lo a loony, you know. And so uh, they call her sleazy. They call her a liar. Uh, they call it a hit job. They call it yellow journalism. Uh, it's just this one rant after another. Well, when I went public... They took another tactic, and that was, we're not going to go after Detweiler. Not because I'm somehow more skilled or able than Paige, who's far more skilled and able than I am. But because I'm known around the nation, and I've got a blog that's read around the nation, and because I went into even you know, two or three times the amount of detail um, and so they just decided we're not even going to say one bad thing about Detweiler. I mean, they knows how they know how the news cycle works. You know, it's, we're just going to let it go by. We're just going to blow over. This never happened. I mean, these guys. I mean, they're really professional con artists. Phil is, and the marketing department out there, same thing. Uh, it's it's awful. And, you know, if people think these are outlandish claims, they haven't studied uh, the evidence. Uh, it's all right there. Yeah. And I say this. Let me let me add this. I say this as somebody who had many of John MacArthur's books in my library. I mean, there's a lot that I agree with John on theologically. Uh, I have all his commentaries. I have his study Bible. I have all of his main books are in my library. Uh, I appreciate his writings. Um, you know, I'm not a cessationist. I'm not a dispensationalist. But there's so much in terms of his overall Reformed theology and uh, soteriology, you know, with which I would really agree. And um, I would share his current concerns about social justice going awry and becoming too much of a focus to the extent that the primary mission of the church 
which is the gospel, ends up getting sidetracked. I wrote about that for Sovereign Grace in our magazine, I think back in 1983. Because um, there always are so, so, so many causes. And not that we shouldn't be involved in some of them or as citizens of the United States do our part to love our country. But obviously the main mission of the church is to preach the gospel and to build the church and to evangelize the lost. And ultimately that's the only way our society is ever going to be turned around. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now when you, you know, cause you're, you're just, you're making these accusations against Phil and MacArthur and essentially calling them con artists and, you know, different things right. like that. So, yeah. so for all of us that are in the church, right, we're, we're looking at it and, you know, they've got millions of followers that are around the world that, right. you know, love Pastor MacArthur, love Phil, love Shepherd's Conference, you know, the list just goes down the list. What, what are we all supposed to be doing and how are we all supposed to respond to this ministry that, you know, because the argument will be made, they do so much for the gospel. They do so much for expository preaching. They train so many pastors around the world. The The Bible teaching coming out of John MacArthur is a, far and above better than anybody else. So how can we make this accusation that they're con artists when they do such great work for God? How, yeah. how do we discern that? Right. Well, I think this is where you have to distinguish between sound doctrine, spiritual gifting, and Christian character. You know, my roots kind of go back to the Jesus movement, as I said earlier. So the Jesus movement, the charismatic movement, was very weak on, God, on doctrine. And so, of course, you know, one of the things, Dr. Walter Martin, world's most renowned expert on the occult and the cults, was my professor. And so I was schooled in looking for false doctrine. And so you look for that. Uh, but John MacArthur, overall, I mean, I think his exegesis of 1 Corinthians 13 is abysmal. But overall, his exegesis is sound in many, many respects. And I benefited from it. Sound doctrine, okay. Spiritual gifting, okay. But here's the thing I've learned. You can be charismatic and be spiritually gifted, raise people from the dead. You can teach doctrine extraordinarily well and be the world's greatest expositor and yet be a liar and deceiver at the same time. And that's a hard truth for people to come across because in the charismatic world, you see somebody that appears to be supernaturally healed, you're not going to believe this guy could be sleeping around with 21 different women. You see somebody expositing the Book of Romans, and all of a sudden, you know, propitiation, justification, they're just exploding the reality. You can't believe that this guy would make up stories to increase his legend about being a professional level athlete and an all-American collegiate and standing on the blood of Martin Luther and going up into the boarding room that was guarded. Nobody could get in that room. And stating six times in six of his seven accounts, I stood on the toilet to look out the window. Well, there is no toilet under the window. And you can't see the Lorraine balcony out standing on the toilet. Nobody in any report ever referred to the toilet. There was a bathtub 
anybody who goes into the Betty Brewster boarding room, into that common bathroom area, knows that he stood uh, in the bathtub. And so this is one of the things, finally, when Phil's getting hammered on this, he finally had to back off and say, well, maybe it was just a little mistake in a detail. And in my article, what I say is, no, 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 MacArthur, time after time after time after time after time, and he's explicit. He says, my memory is crystal clear. This is vivid. This is exactly what happened. But that place was under guard. Nobody could get in there, not even the police that weren't authorized. And so um, it's, it's very, very serious. And so, I mean, what, what you, you've got to have is Christian character, spiritual gifting, and sound doctrine. And that's where you've got to have all three. But people assume you have Christian character if you have spiritual gifting and sound doctrine. But you may not. And that's where, um, I mean, guys like Rick Holland, they know this. They know how difficult it was to relate to John MacArthur. And so do all the guys who've gotten fired over the years. You know, uh, I, I just hope more and more speak out about it because it's all there. And um, so it, it's very serious. Yeah. I think in Phil's case, he is absolutely unquestionably disqualified from ministry. And his Christian character is so poor that it would take years for him to build his character. You know, John MacArthur, John MacArthur is very guilty of telling a lie for his own vain glory. Not only about what happened with Martin Luther King, and with Charles Evers, and with John Perkins, uh, but also all about his sports accomplishments. Uh, there's every reason to believe he's lied about other things, but he needs to come clean. If John MacArthur got up tomorrow and said, listen, I am disqualified based upon the qualifications I have taught. I have lied, I have deceived, I have made up a story, I'm stepping down. Then maybe, maybe his elders could put him on probation for a year or two and just say, okay, John, we're going to research your entire past. We're going to go through everything you've written, every story you've told. Is there anything you haven't told us? We need to do a deep dive. But these guys aren't going to do that. These guys are covering up because their livelihood is at stake. Ultimately, what this comes down to is money and position. That's what it comes down to. And that's really what it always comes down to. So these guys are fighting to preserve the ministry, to preserve their jobs, to preserve their high positions, to preserve their lucrative salary and benefits. It's always what it's about. Yeah. And, you know, and and, 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 we see, and we see that with, with these guys, and, and so we understand that that's their motivation, right? So, so, so from that perspective, I can understand. It doesn't make it right, but I understand why they're doing it, right? I, th I think another factor which leads to this is that they're taking advantage 
of this celebrity mindset within the church. And yeah. so where what happens is people are choosing their favorite fa their favorite pastor first, and then they're following everything that they teach second, as opposed to going, this is what I believe God's word says first, and then I'm going to follow so-and-so because this is what they teach. And I think that that's why a lot of these big-name pastors have been able to get away with so much is because they're followers of said pastor first, and then they just trust them because they have so much faith in them because they've had so much benefit from their teaching. And I think that right. that's, that's contributing to this problem in general. It sure is. And I don't want to uh, overly discourage your listeners because this is discouraging. I mean, to see what CJ's done, to see what John MacArthur has done, and to see what so many others have done. But, you know, back in about 1995, you know, where <clears throat> Sovereign Grace was now becoming kind of the darling of the reform movement, reform charismatics or, or charismatic Calvinist. And um, that's when we first met R.C. Sproul, 1995. But soon thereafter, we began to be introduced to all the key leaders throughout the body of Christ. Um, John Piper, Al Mohler. You know, I remember going to John Piper's home, spending time with him, CJ, I, Dave Harvey, Steve Shank. It was a delightful evening. Um, and and so just one after another, you know, Wayne Grudem. I could go through a long, long list of nationally known leaders. These men became our friends. Um, and I got to know many of them. And, <clears throat> and yet, as we were getting to know them, we were becoming aware none of these guys have any accountability. And in Sovereign Grace, except for CJ's deceptive tactics, we really did have accountability. And so CJ would come back from these trips Again, I'm his closest confidant. And he's just telling me, I won't even recite their names. It's just too discouraging. If I could go list, I could list 12 men, all nationally known, and just saying, they don't have any pastors. They have no one speaking into their lives. They have no accountability. And uh, they have no one adjusting them. And... CJ was actually a part of our repositioning CJ and to lay down his senior pastor responsibilities and turn the church over to Joshua Harris in 2002 was so that he could continue to help these men find some accountability, like Phil Driscoll. Um, John Piper wanted Driscoll to really be brought into the national limelight, you know, and so did CJ. Uh, Together for the Gospel was already going, but guys like Mark Dever, uh, I'm not sure about Driscoll, you know, and so Dever was saying, I'd rather have MacArthur come. Let's invite him to the first one. And so even back in those days, yeah, should we have MacArthur? Shouldn't we? And actually in 2006, the first Together for the Gospel, CJ was saying, no, 
John, I think, is too much of a fundamentalist. I don't think he's going to fit in too well with us. Let's get Phil Driscoll in. And so part of the plan all the way back then, this is kind of the information I was privy to, was John Piper was setting it up for Driscoll, for CJ to meet with Driscoll to help address him on some of his arrogance and some of outlandish statements, you know, of sexual crudeness and lewd nature. You know, and John MacArthur was right about some of that stuff where he was taking Driscoll to the task. And so anyway, it's a long way of saying that CJ was trying to help these men build some friendship and accountability. He finally uh, gave up with John MacArthur and so did the men around him. Yeah. And that's they left. Yeah, and, and you know, and one thing I just wanted wanted to bring up to you really quickly because I know we've been going for quite a while, but I did want to bring up this this latest T four G conference, um, and because I know that that there's this divide now where you know MacArthur's no longer involved there, and with the Shepherds Conference, it seems like a lot a lot of the guys that are involved with the T four G are no longer speaking at Shepherds Conference. Right. Um, and so when when we're kind of looking at that specific situation, it seems like both sides are kind of deflecting to a certain degree on like what's at, what's actually going on and I know I know again you wrote an article kind of discussing some of this kind of stuff but like right. what what's actually going on <laughs> right well it's very very clear um, that Al Mulder finally I mean I've been sending Al evidence for eight years which he has refused to read I have appealed to Al talk meet I'll fly to Louisville same with Dever. And these guys have just refused to talk, meet, discuss, read, evaluate. And yet final, Rachel Denhollander in March of last year, basically took all the information that I had provided her and some that she had come, come upon as a result of contacts I put her with and met with uh, Alan just said, hey, here's the deal. And um, it gets a little too complicated. But it was at that point, you know, that Al began to see, oh, my goodness, C.J. Mahaney has totally deceived me. C.J. told me there was an investigation that he participated, that he cooperated, that never, ever happened. And many other things that I include in my article, you know, and so more recently, I, I wrote Dever, I wrote Mueller, I, I wrote Ligon Duncan, who is the chancellor for Reformed Theological Seminary, all the seminaries, all their campuses, and just said, listen, you know, MacArthur, you were just there in March. You need to bring up all these fabrications about Martin Luther King. You need to bring up his bogus sports claims. You need to address this. And uh, an interesting connection is the guy who did kind of the definitive interview with John Perkins is Isaac Adams, his black brother. And on the 50th anniversary, uh, which was last April, Martin Luther King's uh, assassination, he interviewed John Perkins on United We Pray, a podcast. I didn't know at that time that Isaac Adams was on Mark Dever's staff. And the question, the lead question is, where were you 
when Martin Luther King was assassinated and how did you find out? And John Perkins gives a crystal clear black and white answer. I was in Mendenhall. I'd just been in the high schools preaching the gospel. I was coming home. A neighbor ran across the street. Kids came running across the street at my home in Mendenhall. They said, Martin Luther King has been assassinated. My home phone rings. Somebody calls and says he's been assassinated. He wasn't anywhere near Jackson, Mississippi. He made no trip to Memphis. The next day, his own account was he is back in the high schools, reaching out to all these black kids who are devastated by the assassination of Martin Luther King. And so Isaac Adams, who is on Mark Dever's staff, knew the truth about all this. I just put that connection together recently. So the long and the short of it is, Mark Dever knows. Mark Dever absolutely knows from one of the pastors on his staff, let alone from all my writing, that this fabrication. But thus far, to my knowledge, those three men have not been willing to do anything about it. It may have been a factor in why they didn't invite him back to 2020. The social justice issue, I'm sure, was a factor. But to my knowledge, no one. Uh, that article I wrote about uh, MacArthur and Phil Johnson and Martin Luther King, I sent that out to a thousand leaders around the nation. All the top leaders in the evangelical and reformed body of Christ. I don't know of anybody who's been willing to take them on. People have contacted me behind the scenes who aren't willing to go on the record. I've contacted Christian Today, I've contacted the Christian Post, I've contacted World Magazine. I said, listen, this is a major story, not just about Martin Luther King, but everything else covering up rape, covering up sexual assault, violating the Clary Act, the Wask uh, investigation being put on probation. This is a major story, and it's all part of a bigger story. Why aren't you covering it? And to my own, to my knowledge, there's only one journalist who is willing to look into these events. And I hope, I hope a groundbreaking journalistic piece comes out of it and more does. But this silence is abysmal. Now, this is the kind of silence though that we see everywhere. I mean, MacArthur, Dever, Duncan, they covered up for CJ for eight years. And uh, you asked much earlier in the podcast, and what happened when <clears throat> I sent out the documents? Uh, well, of course, Sovereign Grace attacked me, but they did it in concert with Mark Dever, Ligon Duncan, and Al Mulder. 
And so those guys in concert, it was an orchestrated campaign, went public and posted on the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and on, uh, hmm, I forget what the other blog post was. And they just said, Detweiler obviously has a vendetta against Mahaney. His documents are spurious. We know C.J. Mahaney. There is nothing in these documents which I had not even read. That would give us the slightest pause. And um, it was really quite orchestrated. And then that continued later when finally, you know, I was pressing for an investigation. Uh, and I had been promised in 2011 uh, an exhaustive factual uh, investigation of all my allegations. And that promise was horribly broken. But they did a preliminary investigation and they deployed Carl Newman, uh, Ray Ortland, Kevin DeYoung. They said there was an evaluation of CJ's written confessions going on. Those written confessions almost all had to do with me. He never asked my forgiveness for anything in person. And those men did this hidden uh, investigation. They never contacted me. They never talked to me. They never asked me about it. Uh, I didn't even know who they were, when they were doing it. And then they published a report and said, CJ's clean. Ain't nothing to it. Yeah, a couple little issues here and there. But there's nothing what Detweiler's been saying about us. He's a model Christian. And I, I wrote about this. And I've, write, I've written all those men. I mean, those men all know me. I've written all those men. And, I, and after years and years of them refusing to come clean for their deceitful investigation that intentionally excluded me and was done behind my back, not even knowing who they were. Um, I went public with it, I mean, four or five years later. And, but I reached out to them all. Guys, would you talk to me? Would you answer my questions? They're all honestly too cowardly to do so. Plus, they would have to admit that they did a fraudulent investigation. Well, that type of thing, I hate to say it, but that is far more widespread amongst these men who are who are concerned about their image and their reputation. And they will go to great lengths. Threats, lying, deceiving, firing individuals, orchestrated slander campaigns to silent, quote unquote, whistleblowers. It's tragic, but it's real. Yeah, you know, and again, in I think I was t I was telling you this before we went live is it just seems like there's so many parallels between what's going on in Washington D.C. and and the political world and what we're seeing happening in the church. I mean, everything's PR. Everything is about jockeying for position. Everything's about control and power and finances. And it's it's really scary about how corrupt this church system is when we're supposed to be doing ministry. We're supposed to be preaching the gospel. We're supposed to be pointing people back to God's word. We're supposed to be helping to evangelize the world. And instead, we're focused on deflecting 
and keeping power, keeping control, and just instead of engaging in stories, like if some, like to me, if somebody came to me and accused me of claiming that I was at some major event, and I would provide evidence and say, look, you're wrong, here's the evidence, here's why, end of story. You can believe it right. or not, but at least here's the evidence. But it just seems right. like with them, there's no evidence to, to back up their claims, and then they right. just go on the attack. It's, it's nuts. Right. I'd, I'd fly out to Grace Community Church tomorrow, sit down with all the elders, say, guys, where am I wrong? Let's go through my document, paragraph by paragraph, page by page. Let's talk about this. Please refute me. Please take me on. Let's video it. Let's streamline it. Let's go live. They can't. They can't because they're guilty. It's the same reason, even though leaders from around the nation, Christianity Today, Mark Galley, editor-in-chief, Rachel Denhauer, you know, Al Mulder even now, are saying, Sovereign Grace, let's do a professional, independent investigation of this alleged 35-year history of covering up the sexual abuse of children. They will never allow it to happen. They are never going to allow, they're never going to allow me to sit down with three lawyers from a top tier law firm who do professional investigations like this and me pull out all the evidence I provided to the FBI right on down the line. They are not going to allow that to happen. There's so much evidence I haven't presented because victims have said, please don't go public with it. We don't want to be traumatized. We don't want to be slandered. We don't want to be attacked. We don't want to go through the hell that this will entail. But if I got with professionals, I could say, here's my evidence. You've got to keep these names confidential. But here are all the victims from all these churches. Yeah, for instance, Rachel Denhollander went on the Martha McCallum show on the Fox News channel in March of last year. <clears throat> and she was talking about this. She said she has evidence of up to half of all the churches in sovereign grace not reporting sexual abuse. Well, that's right. I know what she's talking about. And that's why Sovereign Grace is never going to let this happen. My hope is that um, there will yet be a rest. My hope is that more victims are going to change their mind and they're going to step up and speak out and uh, that this evidence will finally really bury sovereign grace because it is so pervasively corrupt, systemically corrupt. And I say that because those are the facts. And again, these are the guys I trained. These are the guys who are my best friends. These are the men that went through the pastor's college. And these are guys I know. And, uh, and I can't believe you know, what they've become. 
Yeah. Well, you know, like I, I feel like, um, you know, because there was there was the show that Leah Remini did on exposing Scientology, and there was a lot of similar tactics that were that were going on, and um, and they were con- confronting a lot of a lot of the problems in the Church of Scientology, and it just seems like what they needed was to get an, an entire group of of victims to come forward to share their stories and be willing to explain what it is that happened but they had to have the confidence that they were going to be protected and i think that by having uh you have power in numbers so i think coming forward and sharing your story is important and the more people that do it the better right yeah i mean there's a price to be paid oftentimes it can be difficult but if it's at all possible they need to come forward and you know one of the other one of the other instances uh, i i know of i know of individuals who abuse uh, they were my friends i now know about it. i know it from the victims i know about of interacting with the victims i know about it from things that police have shared but one of the problems is not only some victims not willing to come forward is building case that you can take to a jury of 12 and prove beyond a reasonable doubt crimes that are committed against young children or a child in a private confine that was not observed by anyone. When you don't have DNA evidence, you know, or even the buildings in which uh, those crimes occurred have been knocked down. And so it can be difficult, but I'm hopeful. And I assume that uh, there will be you know, victims who will be listening to this podcast. Uh, I just encourage them, you know, you can do it. I mean, these, uh, these kids who are now adults, uh, there's some tremendous individuals. And um, I'm looking forward to more of them speaking out. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and the thing is, is that and I, this is why like, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and we can talk about it. And I know, and I know we've been talking for qu- quite a while, about an hour and 45 minutes. There's a lot of information. I feel like there's so much more information that we could even <laughs> that we could even dive into. Uh, so we might, we might have to do it again sometime. But I but I just think it's important that that these stories and these accounts and all of this documentation is continually talked about until it's actually dealt with. Because I think that What's happening is, again, even for their sake, even for these pastors' sakes and for the, their followers' sake, is that repentance is needed. That's the goal. The goal is not to destroy. The goal is not to take down anybody. The goal is repentance. And I think, and I think that you and I both have that same mentality of, like, I can tell you care about C.J. Mahaney. I can tell that you want to see him come to repentance. I can tell that you actually care about these people that you've invested so much time and energy into. For me, I'm looking at it from looking at Phil Johnson used to be my favorite speaker at Shepherd's Conference. John MacArthur, I grew up reading almost exclusively all of his books. All I'm doing is I'm taking what he's taught and saying, why isn't this lining up with what you're doing? Like, I want to see the guy be successful and repent and come back to biblical Christianity because like this is the guy that completely influenced essentially my entire theological life. So I think I think from from both of our perspectives 
we're coming at this from a position of wanting to see biblical Christianity behave correctly. We want to see repentance and we want to see the church succeed. But to do that, these leaders need to do the right thing. Right. I mean, you're absolutely right. I am a conservative evangelical. I love the gospel. I love the church. I believe in the priority of preaching. Pastoral care is essential. Involvement in a local church, no question. Uh, my theology, my New Testament theology, hasn't altered one bit, despite all I've been through. And, uh, you know, it's been everything. I taught systematic theology for 30 years. And then 10 years ago, I began to address this corruption. And I laid down, you know, the calling of a pastor and a teacher, because of all the harm that was being done by the corruption of which I was becoming aware. And, uh, you know, that continues to be the case. Uh, and so you're right, this is not about attacking individuals because you have some vendetta. Uh, you know, I've been vilified in every which way you possibly can. But, you know, what Sovereign Grace has never done has ever dismantled what I've written, what I've said, what I've documented. The only thing they've done for 10 years is tried to vilify me and <clears throat> say I'm full of hate, uh, I'm full of vengeance, I'm full of bitterness, I'm full of wrath. Uh, I'm really none of those things. I'm passionate. I'm intense because the glory of God is at stake, because qualifications for ministry are at stake, because the integrity of the church is at stake, because the people of God are at stake, and because the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. And so that's what I'm about. And uh, so if they want to accuse me of zeal for my father's house to consume me, that's fine. They're welcome to do so. Yeah, definitely. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and spending almost two hours with me, kind of like going down this list of all these different things. And again, like I was saying before, Thank I feel you. like these are these are all important issues that need to be dealt with, and they're just not being dealt with. So I think the more that people can be talking about it, discussing it, writing about it, that sort of thing, again, the goal is repentance. So again, thank you so much for coming on here. I really appreciate it. How can people follow you, your writings, you know, social media, and be able to just kind of keep it, keep up with a lot of the things that you're doing? Uh, people are welcome to, you know, come on my Facebook page, Brent Detweiler, or go to my blog at brentdetweiler.com. Um, there are approximately 400 articles on there. Uh, so it's a lot of reading that no one could ever get through. <laughs> but, you know, they can see some of the more recent articles, you know, the ones about John MacArthur, about T4G severing ties with MacArthur, and my letter to MacArthur, Dever, and Duncan. You know, they can see some of the more recent things, some of the stuff I've written, written recently about, you know, Joshua Harris, which is just a complete shame. You know, that he's totally apostatized. But, you know, I've, I've known John for, or Josh for 23 years. And, you know, unfortunately, what has come about in Josh's life, even though I wouldn't have predicted it, I can now retra retrace steps back to 2004, when he was making promises to me as the new senior pastor to hold CJ accountable and broke all those promises. 
And then when he was brought on the board of directors of and Grace three years later, likewise, and uh, cover up for CJ. And so there are issues there. And Josh also is one I've documented who covered up the sexual abuse of children uh, in two very known cases of Covenant Life Church. So, uh, you know, Josh has become a hero in the homosexual community. He's become a hero amongst those who've gone through their apostasy or deconversion. But Josh is really not a hero. Josh has renounced the Lord, denied that he is God come in the flesh, renounced the Bible, renounced all his books, which have some tremendous material in them, has openly embraced the LGBT uh, agenda, has now openly advocated for gay marriage, has divorced his wife or is in the process of divorcing his wife and separating from his children. I pray for Josh. I know Josh. When Josh became the senior pastor, I sat down with him in January 2004. One of the first things Josh said is, now, Brent, I can't wait until I turn 30 because I sure don't feel like a senior pastor. And I said, Josh, you know, the Lord's going to get you through this. Here's some tips. So I'm telling Josh, okay, this transition from CJ, let me help you. I'm going to help you through it. And so that's the way I know these men. And so to see what Josh has done, oh, my goodness. And even though, you know, because Covenant Life has covered so much up, so much up, and the church, I mean, probably 3,000 plus people have left uh, uh, because of all the deceit and deception and corruption. Um, you know, I still feel for those people. Man. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and I think I think I think the important thing I think for all of us is we need to compare everything with Scripture. That's that's our that's our key. That's that's where we need to root all of our beliefs, all of our uh, how we behave. Uh, and then when we see a lot of these pastors behaving differently or teaching differently, everything needs to come back to the scriptures. So when when somebody's confronting somebody, they're not confronting them because they disagree over their opinion. They need to be confronting them because what they're saying or doing is going against what scripture teaches. And I think right. that I think that that's what we can always bring this back to is everything needs to be rooted in God's word. And right. what we're seeing is a lot of these church leaders are not behaving in ways that line up with God's word, which I think is why people like you and, and, and I say and I say this all the time. There, there's three guys that, that I see out there that do some of the best research when it comes to a lot of these church leaders. There's Brandon Howes, there's Tom Littleton and there's you. The three of you guys document everything to an extreme more than anybody else like almost to the point to where to where uh what's what's being written is almost all quotes and documentation and things like that we need more of that because again everything needs to be compared back to scripture so that's why i appreciate you i appreciate what you're doing i know you get a lot of blowback but you know it's hope hopefully it'll be worth it in the end so so well, again, th thank, thanks, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate you coming on. Really appreciate thank you doing you, this. We'll have to do it again down the road sometime. But I, it's it's fun to talk face to face because before now we've only emailed and messaged back and forth. So th this has been right. great. Thank you for the job you're doing. Thanks for being willing to address these kind of issues. They're vital to the church. 
definitely. Thank you so much. And then for everybody else as well, uh, make sure you guys uh, like us on uh, Facebook. Go subscribe over on YouTube. And then also as well, we're going to be back tomorrow with another uh, live podcast. We're going to have Derek Manning on, and uh, he just wrote an article uh, a couple of weeks ago that we're going to be talking about, which is discussing his experience coming out of the Jehovah's Witness uh, cult and looking at if there's any parallels between what we're seeing in mainstream evangelicalism and what he experienced coming out of that. So it's going to be a fascinating conversation. So make sure you guys come in 1030 tomorrow morning, California time right here on Facebook. And um, thanks so much. And we'll, we'll talk again tomorrow. Holidays are a moment of togetherness and joy and a reminder of how tradition creates happy and fulfilled communities. Make this holiday season patriotic with a visit to National Harbor and its stunning new Spirit Park. Marvel at one of the largest American flags in the region and beautiful displays of American art. Make this holiday season the most meaningful of all at National Harbor. Learn more at nationalharbor.com dash spirit park. HIV epidemic is not over. HIV is still here. The face of HIV is so diverse. The biggest thing to reduce HIV stigma is just to talk about it. Testing and PrEP and HIV treatment and how effective it is today. Undetectable equals untransmittable. Whether you're positive or negative, there's not a wrong door. Whether it's testing or whether it's treatment, do it for you, Montgomery County. Learn more about HIV testing, treatment, and prevention at doitforyoumc.org.